0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, we're going to talk about books, specifically what we talk about when we talk about books, an amazing little tome that came out last fall by the literary critic and Rutgers professor Leah Price. She's the founding director of the Rutgers Initiative for the Book, which looks at books through the lens of material and social history to tell the real story, both of how we read in the past and how we read today. You've seen all those doom and gloom think pieces. I mean, we've published them at The Scholar about how we just don't read like we used to and we're all going to hell in a handbasket for using Twitter and just can't we go back to the golden age of reading? I think anyone who loves to read and who found first love and first friends between the pages of a book is prone to this kind of thinking sometimes. I certainly am. Which is why Leah Price's work on books is such a necessary corrective to the way we think about reading. She emphasizes that books, really, were and are the ultimate social media in a lot of ways. And the best thing that reading does isn't isolate us in a room with the author, but connect us to one another in the present. Leah Price joins us from her home, where she informs me that she is still unpacking all her books. Thanks for talking to me, Leah.
1: Thank you for talking to me, Stephanie. It's always a pleasure to converse, but it's especially nice to hear a live voice right now when um, a lot of us have echoing silence around us. Well, I mean, that
0: is a really great lead-in to my first question, which is, as a book historian, as someone who lives in books... How have you seen the pandemic reshape or harden any of your thoughts about where the book is headed or where reading is headed?
1: You know, that's a question that every reader has probably been thinking about these last months, and I think that how you answer that question says a lot about your relation to books. If you're a literary critic... You might answer that question by looking at the spike in sales of particular books. Camus' novel, The Plague, spiked at the beginning of this spring, Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, and maybe less exaltedly, when I went onto eBay myself, along with the rest of America, to stock up on essential supplies for the long lockdown ahead. I was looking for uh, some forms of wood pulp like toilet paper, but I was also looking desperately for coloring books and activity books to keep my four and a half year old occupied. And I can report from personal experience that the price of preschool activity books has tripled in the last two months, which suggests, first of all, that the reading that we do at a moment like this is not all about coming to terms with the reality that confronts us. It's also about escaping that reality and managing that reality And I would also say that shifting from thinking about what people are reading during the pandemic to what has happened to the price of books and the supply chain during the pandemic reflects a difference between the way a literary critic thinks about books and the way a book historian or an economic historian or a social historian thinks about
0: books. So how did you transition into thinking about books this way? What does, you know, a book historian figure out from looking at a book, not only as an object in a supply chain, but as an object that, you know, could carry disease, or an object that has crisp corners, or this one has coffee stains, or this one has marginalia? Like, what are the clues that you're looking at in figuring those things out?
1: I'm trained as a literary critic. I'm an English professor, and that means that my primary uh, academic education took the form of learning to think about the text as a sequence of words. Book historians think instead about a material object that was made by somebody that bears the trace of human labor, meaning not just the mental work of the author but also the manual work of the people who printed it and bound it and warehoused it. So one difference between thinking as a literary critic and thinking as a book historian is that it involves widening out from thinking about the brain of an individual author to thinking about the collective labor of a lot of people who are often less visible because less rich or powerful than the author. And another difference is that literary criticism tends to operate on a fairly abstract level. It's about ideas. It's about words. Whereas book historians are thinking about material culture. So to return to our opening discussion of the pandemic, one of the things that have struck me about this current moment of sheltering in place, thanks to my research as a book historian, is that concerns about the power of books to spread disease, about paper and cardboard and glue and thread and ink as vectors for germs tend not to be simply about the actual danger posed by books, which in this case, I think we can agree are relatively low compared to other vectors for disease such as uh, breath, but rather they tend to reflect anxieties about human contact and social closeness, the first big wave of anxiety about books making people sick emerged about a century and a half ago after publicly funded libraries began to replace private, members-only, proprietary, for-profit circulating libraries And early librarians, early public librarians in the second half of the 19th century were obsessed with the fear that dirty books would poison their patrons. Librarians invented these special uh, fumigators, boxes called disinfectors, where you would um, dunk the book in a kind of steam bath of acid in order to get off whatever had been left behind by previous patrons. And when they talked about these book disinfectors, they were often talking more or less explicitly about social class, about the worries that the clean middle-class patron who borrowed a book that had last been borrowed by someone of a lower social standing would be contaminated by the dirty, unsanitary, yucky household in which the book had previously lived for a two-week borrowing period. And librarians also worried more specifically that certain kinds of books, like novels, were likely to have been read by sick people because when you're convalescing on your sickbed, you don't have enough mental energy for some heavy, improving, philosophical tome. What do you read? A trashy novel. And therefore, they were especially concerned about the circulation of fiction that might spread disease from one household to another. So that's an example of how the material qualities of the book, the porosity of the page, the extent to which different kinds of surface retain germs or bacteria for longer or shorter amounts of time can factor into our perceptions of reading matter. That said, I should say that book historians don't just deal with the book as a physical object they also deal with reading as a social practice. And so if we wanted to think about the pandemic in that respect, we could think about the ways in which sheltering in place and lockdown and quarantine have carved out time for reading that Americans didn't previously have because we were too busy rushing around It's true that a lot of dead time has opened up for many people, and historically people read when they have dead time. This is why most pleasure reading historically has been done by teenagers, by retired people, by women. This is where the stereotype of the novel reader as a housewife, the Madame Bovary, trope comes from. And you could say that the lockdown has turned us all into Madame Bovary on the one hand. On the other hand, I can say again, as a parent who has seen my pleasure reading time dip rapidly with the closure of, uh, of daycare and public schools, that I miss my commute because my commute was used to be the time when I listened to audiobooks. And now I have no solitude.
0: Yes, there are so many things that have changed or that the pandemic has highlighted, I think, in how we talk about reading. And uh, I don't quite know where to begin because you just brought up so many juicy things. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you use book history or how you use your book specifically what we talk about when we talk about books to push back a little bit against this myth of this golden age for reading you know at the beginning of the pandemic people were like yeah so Tolstoy wrote war and peace during a plague year why haven't you written you know in search of lost time book one yet uh (laughs) you know like this this uh this idea that we're returning to a golden age of being free from our devices or having the
1: time. Yes, I think you raise an important point about our current tendency to romanticize the printed book or to idealize the history of reading, because the more dissatisfied we are with our current digital lives and with the short attention span that we often perceive as coming with the use and abuse of social media, the more we tend to contrast everything that's wrong with our current moment with an imagined, nostalgically envisioned past in which before the smartphone We were all all curled up with war and peace. And one of the things that the history of reading can teach us is that the vast majority of society was never curled up with war and peace. People were reading newspapers. People were reading printed listicles. People were reading broadside ballads. People were reading pulp novels so that I, I think that it can actually obscure matters to use printed books as a stick with which to beat short-form digital media given that the vast majority of printed matter for the past half millennium now has not taken the form of books, let alone of great books. It's taken the form of periodicals and short form material and advertising material and bureaucratic forms. And you can see this, even if you go all the way back to Gutenberg, whose uh, shop, if you measure its printed output, largely produced, not these monumental great books like Bibles, but short bureaucratic forms like papal indulgences, these kind of fill-in-the-blank forms. So I, I think that we often compare digital apples to printed oranges when we compare a best-case scenario of printed reading involving War and Peace or In Search of Lost Time with a worst-case scenario of electronic reading involving Facebook or Twitter. And one thing that book history can help us do is establish a more apples-to-apples comparison between the way people in the past half millennium have actually used print with the way we are actually using digital media now, rather than comparing the way we wish we used print or imagine we used to use print with all of the imperfect ways in which we observe ourselves using electronic or digital content now.
0: I really like the point that you make that it's actually not the devices or the technology that drove the change in reading. It was more the change in our schedules and the way that, say, the dead space you mentioned earlier could be filled with, like, a periodical or, you know, a snatch of a Dickens novel in serialized form. And now that's being consumed by, like, work emails.
1: That seems like a very important point because right now in the United States, for the vast majority of readers, the thing standing in the way of reading is not access to books. It's not the availability of printed matter. Many of us are drowning in printed matter. The thing that stands between us and reading is rather having time available in which we are not either required or tempted to do something else. So reading is really a question of opportunity cost.
0: Yeah, I think, too, one of the things that the pandemic is highlighting for everyone is just how important social experience is. And um, I've been part of book clubs, and I found those to be really much more fulfilling in some ways than just reading the book on my own. Like, it's almost like I haven't read it until I've talked to someone about it. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about something you brought up in your own book about how we tend to romanticize reading as this precious individual kind of communion between one reader and one author, when a look back at how people were actually reading for the past few centuries paints a completely different and really a much more social picture.
1: Well, that might bring us back to the question of reading aloud, because for most of the history of print, a big chunk of the reading public has accessed material not by reading it themselves, but by listening to someone else read it aloud. And this could involve people who are illiterate or partially literate listening to someone else read the newspaper aloud in the pub, a classic scene of uh, political information spreading more widely than just within a small literate upper class, but it could also involve an aristocratic lady being read aloud to by her maid while the hairdresser curls her hair. And one interesting thing about the current moment is that we're really seeing a resurgence of audiobooks, which are clearly becoming the fastest growing segment of the publishing industry and this is quite different from what futurologists predicted at the end of the last century when all of the talk all of the worrying was about whether ebooks would replace printed books and in the event, it seems clear that that's a false dichotomy because the thing that's really winning out is neither ebooks on a dedicated e-reader like the Kindle nor printed books. It's audiobooks in the form of an MP3. And something that that suggests in turn about what readers want is that audiobooks are remarkably stripped down. It's hard to annotate an audiobook, they don't have a lot of bells and whistles. Also in the late 20th century, academics, literary critics like myself, were very excited about the future of what was then called hypertext and we thought that the shiny new thing would be enhanced books, vlooks books that were somehow hybridized with video, books that would jump out at you and make sounds and flashlights and immerse you in some kind of fancy virtual reality. And if you think about it, audiobooks are really the opposite of that. They're a very spare, minimal, bare-bones experience. And so the wild success of audiobooks when uh, sales of the Kindle never really took off and even access to ebooks on other devices, like on the phone, have grown much more slowly than audiobook sales, this suggests that sometimes less is more. People don't want bells and whistles. They don't want to be able to choose their own adventure and navigate the text. Sometimes you want to sit back and let the story waft over you.
0: I mean, what you're describing with Vlooks and, you know, the hypertext just sounds like the internet. And so an audiobook is a nice contrast. It's almost like what you were saying earlier with apples and oranges of text. It's almost like we need both for a balanced diet.
1: Exactly. And it seems clear so far, at least, that short form texts have gravitated toward those web-based forms whereas long-form texts like the book have not
0: so i know the pandemic is obviously shifting the way people are thinking about these things and we touched on this at the beginning of our conversation but you wrote the book a little bit in response to all the doom and gloom from various literary critics and writers and english professors about how like the book is dead, and people aren't reading, and it really is dark for anyone who treats books seriously. And I was wondering if the pandemic has changed your thinking on what the future of reading holds.
1: I hope that the future of books is not represented by the wonderful Twitter account called Bookshelf Credibility, which dissects the bookshelves that various celebrities use as their Zoom background at this moment when we are all seeing the backdrops of one another's living rooms. One very striking function of books during the pandemic is as props, books as a decorative interior design accessory. Eighteenth century aristocrats commissioned leather bindings in uniform sets so that they could look as if they'd read a lot or at least bought a lot. And earlier in the 20th century, the Irish humorist Flann O'Brien imagined a book handling service in which some expert would come to your house and crack the spines of your books and bash them up a little bit and insert bus tickets in between the pages so that if your guests actually took your books down from the shelves, they wouldn't think that you'd bought them from the yard, by the yard. So I think it's it's a very old phenomenon that we expect other people to judge us by our books, but I hope that that's not the answer to the role of books in this new era. I, th- I would hope that the real answer lies more in what you were saying just a moment ago, Stephanie, which is that the more we are bombarded by constantly updating news feeds and the more we are anxiously googling questions like how long does the virus live on cover of a paperback, the more we need to retreat into long form, non-ephemeral texts that have a very long shelf life. And that can help us get away from our present moment, but can also help us make sense of it.
0: I had a lot of fun compiling the links for the show notes on this one. Leah Price's clever volume, What We Talk About When We Talk About Books, is on there, of course, but also links to all those Twitter accounts she talked about and as many online close-ups of books that I could find. So if you've ever wanted to look at The Cats Curled Up in the Letters of the Book of Kells or those papal indulgences that Gutenberg printed between Bible runs or the first vegetarian cookbook in English, we've got you. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.